Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello and welcome to Reloscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions in life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Aditi Kuti. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the show. I am joined today by Adam Bode, um, who is a researcher in interdisciplinary romantic love and human mating, um, viewing love through an evolutionary evolutionary framework, which is a lot of words, and I'm sure we're going to know, ex- understand exactly what that means um, over the course of today's episode. Um, Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm really excited to chat today to you about um, the biology and psychology of romantic love. I'm sure that like that's a question that a lot of people are discussing. I'm curious, where is kind of the research at around this? Like how much do we know and how much do we not know? So the short answer is we know almost nothing about the evolution of romantic love. Uh, there was a, an anthropologist in 1998 who wrote a paper that spoke about independent emotion systems and romantic love being one system that evolved, but there hasn't been a single evolutionary hypothesis tested about romantic love to date. And the focus of my PhD is going to answer some preliminary questions about how romantic love evolved. So we should be getting some answers soon, but uh, at the moment we know very little. Yeah, for sure. I'm really excited, I guess, for that, um, the, the thesis to come. Is it a thesis or a dissertation? I always get them confused. Same thing. Um, I'm excited for um, the research to come out and see what comes out of that, but we're going to be talking a little bit more about that. Um, Did you want to kind of introduce um, to our audience, you know, what you do um, exactly? Sure. So I've come a bit late to the research area. Uh, I've worked uh, for a fair bit as a public servant and then NGOs in public health. Uh, but about five years ago, I decided I wanted to take three or four years out and just do something that I really enjoyed. And I always thought I'd do a PhD and finally got around to doing it. I was thinking about what topics interested me and I wrote an essay in my undergrad on the biological processes underlying romantic love. And it was absolutely fascinating because it was a mixture of psychology, uh, endocrinology, neuroimaging, and there was not that much written about it. So you could really get your head around it. So I approached uh, a couple of people at uh, some universities here in Canberra, and one of them agreed to take me on. So here I am. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I, I'm I'm fascinated by how there's very little um, research done into it because we we all learn about you know oxytocin and the various hormones that kind of get re- supposedly um, are triggered when we experience romantic love or create ex- romantic love, but. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what, what it actually looks like from an evolutionary framework, you know, why we experience love. Um, but we'll talk a lot more about that later on in the episode. I wanted to start with our segment called, have you met Adam Bode? In which I ask you a couple of questions about yourself. Are you re- are you ready to answer them? Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, so what is your favorite book? Uh, so I have to admit, since I started my PhD, I haven't read a single book for pleasure. And prior to that, I I probably only read one, maybe two books a year. So I'm not a prolific reader, 
But about 15 years ago, twice I read The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Absolutely beautifully written, occasionally goes off on tangents describing the environment, but it deals with dark issues of, of contrast and morality and deception. It's got twists and turns. It's absolutely amazing. Everybody should read it. Yeah, no, I so agree. Oscar Wilde is one of my favorite writers as well. I just think, you know, even though he's, what, more than 100 years now since he's been published, it's still so gripping, I find, his stories. Often with older, older stories, it's like the language can be a bit dense and it's difficult to get into. Very yeah. much so. For sure. Um, what about a movie, favorite movie of yours? Uh, so I'm also not a big movie watcher, but uh, one that uh, really stuck with me was Gattaca, which might be 25 years old now, which is sort of a story. It's it's unclear if it's a utopian or dystopian story, but it talks about technology and progress and meaning and purpose in life. And uh, I just found that uh, absolutely amazing. And um, I'm probably going to watch it again soon now that uh, you've reminded me about that. Yeah, for sure. I actually, um, I, we had to watch that for our year nine biology class. I think it was like required learning when we were learning about DNA um, and that kind of thing. So I remember that movie. Um, what about a podcast you've been listening to lately? So occasionally I might watch a Joe Rogan or Alex Friedman if there's somebody that particularly interests me. I'm not, not huge fans of, of that approach, but uh, sometimes I introduce, they introduce some really interesting ideas and concepts. But uh the one I listen to most regularly is a comedian from America called Tim Dillon. He's very irreverent, a bit vulgar at times. It's definitely not everyone's cup of tea, but he's very insightful. Uh, he's a good critique of culture and politics and, and the modern environment. And if anybody's interested in potentially having a laugh, I'd, I'd recommend uh, Tim Dillon's podcast. All right, Tim Dillon, one for the list. Um, what about a famous role model um, that you've looked up to? Um, so I'm not the sort of person that really follows people or or tries to model myself after, after other people. I take bits and pieces from everywhere. But um, there's definitely somebody that I've been very impressed by that I think would be a good role model for people. And uh, he died quite recently, Father Bob McGuire. Um, he was a, a Catholic priest. He was a bit, despite being a priest, a bit irreverent. Um, he was an iconoclast and he, he fought for what he believed in. And I think he provides people a good example of how you can have one foot in the tent, but also stir up trouble. Uh, so I, I really think he was a genuinely good man. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I know that like a lot of people's lives here in Australia have been touched by his um, definitely. And um, it's a huge loss that he's not with us today. I was quite shocked when I got the news. Um, what is the last course that you completed? Uh, so as part of my PhD, I was required to do two courses. Uh, and the last one I did was called Human Evolution, taught by Catherine Bololia at the ANU. And it was an amazing course that uh, basically ran us through about 8 million years of the evolution of humans and closely related species. Uh, it really helped cement my understanding of evolution and develop my understanding of evolutionary theory. Sure. How long did it take you to learn about 8 million years of human evolutionary history? Like all courses, they came into about four months. Uh, wow. And, uh, obviously, we didn't get everything, but uh, I got enough to uh, really develop an understanding, uh, a basic understanding of, of what's yeah. going on. 
Yeah, for sure. That's really awesome. Well, um, thank you uh, for sharing all of that with us. We've gotten to know you a little better now. Uh, and now we can move on um, to, I guess, the main point of our episode today, um, which is looking into the biology and the psychology of romantic love. I, I wanted to start very broadly. How would you define a relationship? Sure. So I guess at its most basic concept, it's simply the sum or combination of interaction between two or more people. Um, if you're talking about romantic relationships, it would essentially be the same thing, but I think there would need to be a mating motivation uh, behind both or any number of people within the relationship. So by human mating, it's basically anything to do with reproduction. So that could be um, uh, swiping, um, sorry, not swiping right on, on Tinder, but um, probably courting an individual, dating an individual. Uh, you could have a committed relationship or um, be married or in a de facto relationship. Recently, uh, Phil Kavanagh from the University of Canberra and I developed the Romantic Love Survey 2022. And it's the largest survey of people experiencing romantic love in the world. And we categorized romantic relationships into four groups. They were dating, committed and not living together, committed and living together, or married and de facto. And I think that's uh, a good way to demonstrate that romantic relationships can take multiple forms. Yeah, for sure. Where does like, you know, queer relationships kind of fall into this if you're talking about like mating or reproductive um, kind of purposes? So using an evolutionary perspective, homosexuality uh, is a bit of a conundrum uh, because most of our theory revolves around the fact that adaptations evolve to promote reproduction um, or survival and homosexual relationships tend not to uh, develop offspring. Uh, we're, we're a bit unclear. Uh, to date, there's only been one study of romantic love and uh, homosexuality, and they found that the neural structures involved in romantic love were the same whether you were straight or gay. Um, I'm currently working on a paper with some very smart people uh, to look at whether sexuality influences the intensity of romantic love, commitment, or how obsessively we think about our partners. Uh, we haven't got the data on that yet, but um, I'll sure to be sure to make that public and maybe I'll send you an email when that's out because that might interest I some of your readers. No, for sure. I would be so keen um, to read up on that myself, you know, even if the readers are not interested. I'm, I'm sure the readers will be interested. That sounds really cool. I'd love to know more about that. But um, yeah, for sure. Do you feel like um, relationships still hold the same kind of meaning and structure as they did maybe decades ago? So I think the short answer to that is yes, but it's not an unequivocal yes. So over the past 60 years, we've seen a number of really significant changes in the way society is structured and functioned, at least in the developed world. So since about the 60s, we've seen this massive increase in the social and economic empowerment of females. Uh, and that has fundamentally changed the dynamics when you're looking at relationship formation uh, and maintenance. Uh, so now that women are, are much more independent, uh, in some locations are earning more than men, um, uh, tend to be more educated than men. Uh, women are increasingly finding fewer and fewer males to be suitable dating partners. Um, and so this has resulted in an increase in the number of singles uh, at different age ranges. 
there's also been the advancement of uh, technology. So, I mean, online dating has totally changed the game. And what people are looking for now, at least at the initial stage, is much more superficial. That being said, uh, I would suggest that romantic relationships as we understand them today first started to evolve anywhere between six and eight million years ago. The, the functions they serve, the, the general purpose they serve in reproduction uh, has been relatively stable uh, across that, that time period. And, and while they may look different uh, today than they did in the 1960s or 50s, uh, I, I think generally they serve the same purpose of binding two people together so that we can have an easier and more enjoyable life. Mm, for sure. What what exactly is romantic love? Like how, how do you define romantic love in itself of itself? Sure. So there's been a number of attempts to define romantic love. I come at it from a biological perspective. And in 2021, Jeff Kushnick from the ANU and I wrote a review of the biology of romantic love, and it included a, a new definition that we propose. It's a bit not convoluted, but it's a bit long. So I'll, I'll walk through uh, each step uh, as we go. So it's essentially a motivational state associated with a desire for long-term mating. So it guides our behavior and it makes us do certain things for the purpose of establishing a long-term relationship. It's associated with a range of social, genetic, hormonal, and neurological activity. So there's a whole range of, well, not as many studies as you might think, but there's a number of studies looking at the biology of romantic love. And we can see that it, it manifests in a particular way in the brain, in the body, uh, and psychologically as well. It's uh, associated with a range of cognitions, emotions, and behaviors. So all the psychological processes are involved. And uh, it can uh, serve a range of reproductive functions. So mate choice, which is basically choosing our partner that we want to spend a long time with. Uh, courtship, sometimes we fall in love with people we're not in a relationship with, uh, and it promotes us pursuing that person. Uh, it, it plays a role in sex. Uh, people who are in love have a lot more sex than, uh, than people who are not in love. And uh, it also says a pair bond formation role, which is basically building the relationship between two people so they can establish a long-term relationship. It uh, is an ad a suite of adaptations and byproducts. So it's quite complicated and complex. It's not just like a single behavior and it evolved relatively recently in human history. It, uh, right. What do you, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Like, what do you mean by relatively recently if we're talking about like 8 million years or so? Yeah, so six to 8 million years ago, you've got to remember mammals have been around for about 200 million years. Uh, humans have been around for the vicinity of hundreds of thousands of years. Um, uh, Homo sapien has been around for the vicinity of hundreds of thousands of years. And uh, there was a progression from about 6 million years ago, give or take, uh, till modern humans, uh, where this suite of adaptations and byproducts was evolving. Uh, I'll just, uh, would like to add though, romantic love is most commonly associated with the early stages of a romantic relationship, but it most definitely exists in the absence of a romantic relationship. Lots of us have experienced unrequited love, uh, for someone who just wasn't interested in this and it can be devastating. Uh, it can also exist for many years and even decades. It's a phenomenon called long-term romantic love, where people have been married for decades, uh, are still passionately, really intensely uh, in love with, with their partner. 
Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I can't relate, but I'm sure that that's uh, it, wonderful for the people who can experience that. What what happens to our brain and our body when we experience romantic love? So we're not absolutely sure. Uh, so to give a bit of context, there's been 43 biological studies of romantic love uh, to date. The first one in, I think, 2000 or 2001 by Bartels and Zeki, where they took a, an image of the brain of people who were in love and compared it with people who were not in love and found differences in activity. Uh, essentially, there seems to be an upregulation or a downregulation of a variety of systems. So we know most about the neural activity, and it seems that there are changes in activity in regions related to reward and motivation, to emotions, to sexual desire, and to social cognition, as well as some higher order uh, activity. Most of those uh, regions I discussed are actually quite low and evolutionarily old. Uh, so it, it has been equated to a drive state like thirst or hunger. I think it's probably far more nuanced than that, but the general sentiment is, is probably valid. Physiologically, uh, we're much more uncertain. So endocrinological studies, so testing hormones from blood or saliva, are notoriously noisy. And there haven't been enough studies to really get a firm understanding of what's going on there. But there seems to potentially be some implication that serotonin is involved or testosterone is involved, which may um, may play a role in increased sexual appetite. Uh, and uh, another neurohormone called nerve growth factor, which is associated with plasticity, which probably makes our brain flexible and allow to undergo all these changes. Uh, physiologically, there's arousal associated with romantic love. So we've got a little bit more energy. And when our loved one touches us, sometimes we gasp with awe or, or have some sort of really intense response. Uh, but uh, we, we really don't know too much. Mm, I guess I, like studies like yours and, have, and others kind of help, will help fill in those gaps that we currently have um, in the research. Uh, fingers crossed. Uh, a big part of what I'm trying to do is develop theory that's going to guide future research. So while I might not specifically be testing people's blood or imaging people's brains, um, I am hoping to provide a literature that is going to guide that sort of research in the future. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What, and I, I, I assume the answer for this is much more complicated than the question is, what are the current evolutionary theories that 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 we might that that might explain our capacity for romantic love? Like, what do people think? Why do people think that might be? So, there's really only two evolutionary theories of romantic love, and the first was postulated by Helen Fisher in 1998, uh, before a single biological study of romantic love had actually been undertaken. Uh, she essentially argued there's three distinct emotion systems, the sex drive, attraction, and attachment. And each of these evolve separately and interact. Um, she argued that attraction system, which was designed to focus our energies on a preferred mating partner, is essentially romantic love. Now, that's uh, 25 years old. It hasn't kept up with the literature. It, it was pretty simplistic uh, to begin with. So recently I have advocated for a theory which is called the theory of co-opting mother-infant bonding, which essentially argued that originally what mammals had was 
love that a mother feels towards their baby. At some point, there was a mutation, and this love that a mother feels towards their baby was replicated. But instead of making us feel love towards our baby, it made us feel love towards a re potential romantic partner or a romantic partner. Uh, it mixed with a number of other brain activities like sexual desire. Uh, and over the spans of millions of years, uh, it evolved into what we currently consider romantic love. I guess that kind of makes me wonder, you know, the love, I guess, what is that filial love between, between a mother and a child? Um, is that, does that look the same biologically to, to romantic love? What, what is the difference? Um, so there, there are some similarities and there's actually been a number of studies looking at maternal love and romantic love and comparing them. And there's in fact been two things called meta-analyses, uh, which is when a study pulls a whole group of other studies together and gets sort of like, not technically, but roughly the average of what's going on. Uh, so, so we get a, a good evidence base. And there was recently one done by uh, Shelley Shi and colleagues uh, in Taiwan that uh, compared, I think, nine or so neuroimaging studies, and they found uh, one primary similarity, which was activity in the left ventral tegmental area, which is a, a region very low in the brain that plays a big role in reward and motivation. There have been a number of other studies that have found a, a number of other similarities between maternal love and and uh, romantic love, and, and these involve deep structures revolved in in reward and motivation that are associated with both dopamine and oxytocin activity. What I, I guess, kind of talking about you know maternal love and also bringing in other kinds of love like platonic, um, familial. Um, all of those forms, like, are there also, is there any research on, I guess, the evolutionary reasons for those as well? So a, an Oxford evolutionary anthropologist named Anna Manchin, I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly, has recently written a book called Why We Love, which talks about love generally, different types of love. There's seven or eight different types that she goes into. Love for our pets, for example, is, a, is one that she, she spends a whole chapter on, essentially. And uh, she argues that all types of love served a role of promoting survival. So mm -hmm. if we love our friends, it's because our friends will support us when we need them. We will cooperate and we will benefit as a group. We love our family uh, because we will do the same things and support them and they share genes with us. So they're going to reproduce. So we have strong familial love. Uh, we love our romantic partners because Generally, it promoted the survival of the mother and of the infant uh, as a fetus and a, as a newborn. So it, even dogs. Um, so recently, dogs have uh, have become a, an important feature of, of human society. And for thousands of years, they played a, an important role in keeping us safe, perhaps at night from uh, predators and, and warning us about things. So all, um, all types of love seem to play a role in survival. That kind of reminds me, and this might be outside of the bounds of your research and you might not be aware of it, but do do animals also experience romantic love the way humans do? Because you were talking about, you know, how like humans definitely have experienced it. It's it's kind of evolved during our time on Earth. But do other mammals or perhaps non-mammals also experience romantic love? 
So you're definitely not the first person to ask me that. And <laughs> uh, not too long ago, I gave a presentation at, at the laboratory of uh, a famous uh, researcher named Karen Bales. Uh, and I, I spent uh, 10 minutes talking about whether I thought animals experience romantic love. So essentially romantic love, one of the functions it serves is pair bond formation. So a pair bond is like a long-term relationship uh, where you know, like a married couple, they're in a, a pair bond, for example. There's a number of animals that also create pair bonds. Not very many mammals, about 5% of mammals, about 80% of birds, maybe 90% of birds. So there are animals that, fare, that uh, establish pair bonds. Only those animals could theoretically uh, experience romantic love. Now, the characteristics of human romantic love, I think is quite nuanced and probably involves a greater variety um, and out of necessity, specific characteristics. For example, um, when we reproduce, uh, women are, are only fertile for a certain period of time each month. So there's a need for sex to occur over very long extended periods of times. Some animals copulate once and they're pregnant and, and that's it. They come into to heat. It's very obvious uh, and that would occur. So in humans, we've got this ongoing sexual desire. So I, I think there's enough differences between humans and other animals in terms of how our pair bond formation looks that you could argue that romantic love's a uniquely human thing, um, but there are similar things in, in other species. That's fascinating. I feel like I could have a whole episode just on like that, um, that question alone. Um, you talked a little bit about, you know, the endocrine system and how that tends to, I guess, dominate discussion about romantic love. What, what exactly, like what hormones are triggered by romantic love and, or I, I'm not sure which, actually, that's a great question. Which comes first? Is it the hormones that create the romantic love or is it kind of the need that the evolutionary need that might trigger those hormones? Like what is it? Chicken or the egg, I suppose. Sure. So the short answer is we don't know for certain, but mm -hmm. we know from decades of research in other social processes that uh, neural activity results in certain behaviors or cognitions or emotions. Um, mm -hmm. That being said, the experience of romantic love probably has some sort of feedback loop that reinforces this. So if dopamine is promoting me to engage in interactions with the person I love and my loved one then engages with me, that also triggers dopamine, which might reinforce it. So like I said previously, there's not enough endochronological studies um, for us to be really, really certain about what's going on, but it seems pretty clear that there's three neurotransmitters or neurohormones that are uh, almost certainly involved, well, certainly involved in my opinion, uh, and that is dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphin, which is like a type of opiate that uh, the body creates. And uh, so dopamine plays an important role in reward and motivation and making us engage in, in pursuit behaviors and that sort of thing. Oxytocin, which has been referred to as the love hormone, which to be quite honest, I don't really like the name of, and I'll explain why momentarily, um, it is associated with making us prioritize the stimulus from our loved one. So it, it plays a role in giving everything to do with our loved one, a special meaning. We prioritize our loved one. They're the most important person. We, we pay attention to our loved one. We remember things about our loved one. Oxytocin plays an important role in that. 
It also seems to play a role in the calming effect of reciprocated romantic relationships that uh, that uh, people write poetry about, for example. Uh, there's also endorphin, particularly beta endorphin, uh, and that uh, is associated with the formation and maintenance of, uh, sorry, the formation of these pair bonds that, that occur. So I've spoken to uh, people who have experience with heroin, for example, and a number of heroin uh, people with heroin uh, use issues uh, describe their relationship with heroin like falling in love with the drug. And so we think there's probably very similar mechanisms that are that are going on in romantic love and, and drug abuse. And when we break up, I don't know if you've ever experienced a breakup. I've experienced a breakup that was unwanted and it's absolutely devastating. And that triggers a sort of state akin to a withdrawal uh, from drugs as well. Uh, so we, we know a bit about what's going on, um, but we're still at the very early stages and you know, it, it's going to take another 50 years to really uh, understand what's going on. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree with, I guess, that idea of a withdrawal. It's it's like your brain really struggles to kind of readjust to life without a loved one that you've probably lost um, against your will. So yeah, I that makes actually a lot of sense now that you, that you put it that way. Um, I guess my final question is this, we have this concept of like chemistry, you know, chemistry with another person. Um, what, what is that? Is there any kind of biological or evolutionary explanation for that? Like, does that factor in your studies at all? Um, so I am, don't look at chemistry, um, but I know there's a little bit of research around. Um, thinking about it, I mean, chemistry we can have with a romantic partner or we could have with a friend or a family member. You know, we, we get along really well. It's basically that sense of a positive social connection. Uh, there's a large body of research on interpersonal interaction. And what I suspect is that chemistry is a combination of two factors. It is an ease of interaction. So we, we find engaging with the person easy to do um, and also an attraction component. So we find the interaction uh, appealing and pleasing. So um, in terms of what causes it, I think it, I think there's a lot of luck involved. Um, I... I it's very rare that I have chemistry with someone I go out on a date with, uh, but it does happen. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, I can't really answer too many more questions about, about that. Yeah, no, that's totally fine. I, I think that kind of like at least sets a baseline for people to go and look into it further if um, if there is anyone doing research on that out there. Um, but that kind of brings us, um, I guess, uh, to the end of this main segment of our show. And we might move on now to our practice and habit experiment debrief, um, where we talk a little bit about how to put what we've discussed um, into practice. Um, so Adam, what is a practice that you would do yourself or what you would like to recommend to other people um, to improve, uh, I guess, let's not use the word chemistry, but maybe to, to tap into their romantic relationship a little bit more? Sure. So I've recently read a paper by some really smart researchers out of the University of Wroclaw in Poland uh, that were looking at affectionate touch and love. And they unsurprisingly basically found that uh, the more love you experience for a partner, the more likely you're to engage in affectionate touch. Now, obviously, when you're in love, it's going to motivate you to touch your partner more uh, in an appropriate manner that both of you are happy with. 
Um, but I suspect, like I mentioned before, there may also be this feedback loop. We know that uh, physical touch is associated with oxytocin activity, probably dopamine and even uh, endorphin activity. Uh, so if you're touching your partner regularly in an appropriate manner that both people are happy with, it may help to reinforce those bonds that uh, you've already established or in the process of establishing. Uh, lots of people in the early stages of a romantic relationship are in a giant bear hug most of the time, holding hands, um, you know, touching each other. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful experience. And that tends to decline as a relationship progresses and we fall out of romantic love and experience this other type of love called companionate love, which is less intense and associated with those long-term relationships. But uh, I, I think, uh, I don't know for certain, but I suspect that uh, increasing physical touch in a, in a pleasant manner is probably beneficial to a relationship. How would you, how would you go about that? Um, so like, <laughs> not to turn, I guess, something so simple into a system, but say you're in kind of that later stage of, of, of what you called, I think, the companionate um, stage of the relationship. Say you're in that part and you're kind of trying to keep um, things alive and, and remind your partner that, that that love is still there. You know, how would you go about doing it? Sure. So a, a stereotype of the companionate love that we experience is two people who have been together for many years, sitting on a couch together, watching TV. Now the sharing and experience, which is probably positive, there's nothing stopping them from just holding hands at the same time. Um, this is a very simple, simple process. Um, putting in conscious effort to, to pat or, or gently caress the arm of somebody when you're talking to them um, are, are little things that I think could um, possibly improve this. But I think holding hands is probably the simplest way that we could do it. Mm -hmm. What, uh, what are some of the challenges with this practice? Why might people kind of, why do people stop, I guess, being so physically affectionate with each other? So we don't know for certain, but I suspect it's because we no longer experience romantic love and romantic love promotes us engaging in that sort of physical interaction. Um, it may have evolutionary roots in grooming behaviors that um, some of our uh, chimpanzee and, and related ancestors do. Um, but uh, it, there's, there's no doubt that physical touch is beneficial and, and it does seem to, to dissipate with the uh, length of romantic relationship. Mm, does that, like, is, is, that, is that a stereotype or is it true that we do actually ex lose or at least experience a decline in romantic love over the course of a relationship is that sure so um the how long romantic love lasts is a, a question of contention so the original postulation was that it could last up to about three years that was by a an author named uh, dorothy tenoff who wrote a, a book on the topic in in the late 70s uh, a couple of biological studies have found that 12 to 24 months after initial blood tests uh, the, the characteristics associated with romantic love had returned to normal. Um, I've got uh, data from the Romantic Love Survey 2022 that shows a, a steep fall off in the number of people experiencing romantic love after two to three years. Uh, so generally, romantic love does not last forever. Um, it transitions into companionate love, which is just as valid and just as important, if not more important, uh, in, in romantic relationships. Uh, but uh, the, this concept of long-term romantic love is relatively rare. Mm, 
that's really fascinating actually it's kind of uh, as someone who kind of struggles a lot with romantic relationships personally it's kind of comforting to hear that like romantic love isn't meant to be permanent or for the majority of people it's not kind of a permanent thing it is meant to drop off after a while um based on your experience would, would is there anything that you would combine with physical touch to perhaps maybe enhance enhance that practice um shared activities are a wonderful way of keeping both parties interested um not necessarily in each other but interested in engaging in ongoing activities together shared experiences we know are an important part of the story of a romantic relationship there's a number of activities that uh can be associated with physical touch um sports or dancing i swing dance um and that's a great way of having physical contact with with somebody uh, in a in a healthy pro-social way uh, i i would uh i would suggest shared experiences is probably uh a, a way to work touch into uh, your relationship sure for sure well that kind of brings me to the end of the debriefs thank you so much for answering all of that um we've now got a couple of questions from the audience are you happy to answer them absolutely fantastic um so our first question is actually from aiden who's in the studio with us today um he's our videographer um is romantic love real if it's just fueled by hormones or biology so the short answer to that i believe is yes it is real it's definitely real we can measure it in terms of people's thoughts feelings and actions uh we know that this particular activity hormonal or neurotransmitter activity associated with that um, and there's a small number of longitudinal studies those ones that looked at um that the length of time romantic relationship uh, romantic love lasts um that indicates that there is a causal relationship between the two it's not just by chance um so Romantic love is definitely real. What I will say, and uh, your listeners might find interesting, is that we were discussing different types of love. There's often this idea that people can uh, have love at first sight. Now, I would actually argue that's not romantic love at first sight. That's just a really strong attraction and that the hormones involved in romantic love need to catch up and often build out of that initial uh, infatuation, if you will. Uh, but... Uh, it can happen. It can happen. Yeah, I guess that's actually one of the other um, audience that's related to another audience question, actually, which is, can you divorce romantic love from sexual love? Are they separate? Um, so you can definitely divorce sex from romantic love and you can definitely divorce sexual desire from romantic love. Um, I argue in one of my papers that's currently under review that sexual desire is one component of romantic love but we've all experienced lust well maybe we haven't in fact i know we haven't but lots of us have experienced lust um for an attractive other that um we we would like to spend some time with but uh we don't have that desire for long-term romantic relationships yeah i guess um it's kind of like that initial attraction is kind of very very different I'm assuming, does, does it affect different, is it different hormones or different parts of the body or different aspects of your biology that are affected by it as well? Like, is, is, does that change at all? So there would be overlap. Um, there's actually been very little research on crushes or love at first sight. 
to my knowledge, uh, I might be wrong, but to my knowledge, there hasn't been a biological study on crushes. Um, and so we don't really know what's going on there, but you can assume the same reward and motivation systems associated with romantic love would be active. Perhaps some sexual desire uh, structures would be associated with, with a crush or, or um, love at first sight, uh, but we, we really don't know. I love that you've kind of like brought up another audience question as well, um, which is, uh, is it a myth that crushes can only last for two years? Um, so I think that's um, a misnomer. So I think crushes probably last a lot less time than that. I think romantic love can last two years or three years. Um, it lasts longer if you're in a romantic relationship than if you are not in a romantic relationship with it. But I think crushes are like the first step in getting the ball rolling. Um, and I know in the past when I've experienced crushes, they certainly haven't last two years. Um, once it becomes apparent that person is not interested in me, they, they tend to subside. Um, what I will say, a, a point related to that, if you are certain there is no chance with a potential partner, your crush or romantic love will subside more quickly. It's this notion that there's still a chance that sometimes keeps it rolling on. It's kind of like it's it's unrequited, but it might not necessarily like it could be different. Like there could be a scenario in which it could be requited that kind of tends to keep it alive. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, final audience question, and this is a bit of a long one. Um, is it possible to experience romantic love for absolutely anyone? I read somewhere that if you're in a situation where you know everything about a person, it's much easier to fall in love with them regardless of their personality. Right. So I don't think we can fall in love with absolutely everyone. Um, if that were the case, it would probably be a lot easier to find dates and partners uh, on Tinder. I think that, I think the uh, success rate on Tinder is is not as high as some people might might suggest. Um, so we do know that intimacy is one of the psychological components of romantic love, and that's basically the sharing and expression of ideas and and knowledge. Uh, between each other, um, telling your darkest secrets, your fears, that time you did that really embarrassing thing. Um, we, we all have some idea of what intimacy is, which can exist in other sorts of relationships as well, but in a romantic relationship seems to be particularly potent. We, we share almost everything uh, with our romantic partner. And uh, so knowing more about someone might promote you falling in love with them more easily. If those are the things that your brain and body want to hear, if we're learning negative things about somebody that they turn out to have a, a horrible personality, it, it's just going to turn us off. So while intimacy can play a role, I think the, the subject of your potential um, affection uh, probably plays a, as big a role. I got a personal follow-up question to that, which is, you know, how much does stuff like personality affect how we attract. I know personality is one of those debated concepts as to, you know, how solid that is and how real that kind of study is. But, you know, how much does a person's character affect our ability to experience romantic love for them? So a famous uh, romantic love researcher named Arthur Aaron and some of his colleagues in a number of studies have looked at the precursors to romantic love and personality is consistently found in those studies to be an important factor in uh, why we fell in love with someone. Uh, they tend to be uh, backdated studies. So you find people that 
have already fallen in love and then you ask them why did you fall in love with this person and and they will regularly say personality that being said uh it's hard to predict uh, what personality characteristics you're going to fall in love with so there's this concept in the evolutionary uh literature on mating uh, called assorted mating which generally says that people tend to mate with people that are somewhat similar to them so um we, we mate on the basis of intelligence, uh, education level, um, uh, physical attractiveness. Uh, we, we, we tend to mate generally with people that are somewhat similar with us. That, that evidence doesn't seem to exist for personality. So while personality appears to be important, um, we can't say that you're going to be attracted to a particular sort. Right, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that does bring me to the end of the audience questions. Um, I really wish that I like, I feel like there are so many questions that those answers have like prompted and I wish we had the time to like go into them. Um, but I might now move on to our open mic segment um, where I let you have a mini TED talk about whatever you feel was important to address at this time. Um, so Adam, what, what did you have to kind of say um, during this point? Sure. So I'd just like to let your listeners know that applying an evolutionary lens to modern human behavior is very useful and sometimes very beneficial to understanding how the world works. So I do it in the context of trying to understand romantic love and applying an evolutionary lens means that the findings can be placed within a context. We understand why things are the way they are and how they got there. Uh, you can all apply this in your daily lives. So when a friend acts in a particular way that you don't quite understand. Perhaps the question is not, why did they do that? But the question is, why would they have done that in our evolutionary past? So there's this concept called evolutionary mismatch. And that basically says that we evolved our behaviors and our brain and our body in an environment that is totally different to the one that we currently live in. And that means that a lot of the behaviors we engage in today are ideally suited for a different environment. So if from time to time you can think, why would an individual behave this way in an evolutionary context? You can ask, how does it promote reproduction or how does it promote survival? Uh, and it might give you a little bit of insight into why people are the way they are. Yeah, that's fascinating. Is there, uh, how long does it take us to adapt to new situations? I'm assuming it's, a few million years off the is that so there's studies from fish that show it can happen in i think a few generations uh, i think okay. humans we're, we're talking quite a number of generations um but really all that's required is a mutation um or a uh or a trait that manifests or the environment changes and the people that have a particular trait live longer or are more attractive um, so it, with humans, nobody really knows, but we're talking many generations for, for this to occur. Certainly, uh, we haven't evolved much, if at all, in, in, in the last thousand years or so. Yeah, wow, that's so fascinating. Um, again, I could talk about this for hours, but I feel like uh, this is kind of um, the, the, the reasonable conclusion of our episode today. Um, where can people find you? Sure. So I've got a website. It's adambode.net, A-D-A-M-B-O-D-E.net. And I've just got a little blurb about myself as well as information about the data set I've collected and uh, 
uh, basically, uh, if you want to get in contact with me, you, you can send me an email or I'm also on Twitter. It's Adam Bode for. Yeah, for sure. And once your, you know, research is published, you know, where, where is that going to be? Is that going to be available by the university or? Sure. So, um, science is a peculiar environment and a lot of the research that I have can't be just posted on the internet because there's copyright issues. But um, I will have a list of all the studies on my website as, as they come out. And if anybody wants a copy of that, they can email me and I can send them a, a copy. That's not a problem at all. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I'm fascinated to read those studies as well when, they, when it's done. Um, and I've had such a lovely time talking to you. I, I feel like it's not often that, especially on this show, things get very sciencey, but I always, always enjoy when it does. Um, so I, I've had a great time. Thank you so much. It was fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Reliscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Lab. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found at re.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Aditi Kuti. Thanks for tuning in.